This morning we are going to be in Revelation chapter 10. We're going to be going through the whole passage this morning. It's a little bit of a, uh, we have a little bit of a, an intermission in our sermon series, or not in our sermon series, but at least in the events that are taking place in Revelation. Some commentators call it an interlude, which would be appropriate as well. And so you know that we are in the sixth trumpet, if you will. So the sixth angel has blown his trumpet, and we're waiting on the seventh trumpet. But the sixth trumpet, as with the sixth seal, has a, sort of this intermission in the activity. It's not a time for us to leave and go get popcorn. Uh, it's a time for us to really uh, zero in and focus in on what God has for us. Uh, today, we, we are going to find that the passage is actually very uh, strange uh, to our 21st century eyes and ears, uh, but fear not, it would have been strange to many individuals in the first century as well, and only those who were accustomed to reading God's Word uh, would really be able to grasp what is actually going on uh, in this. And so that's sort of the way apocalyptic literature works is that for those who, uh, who it's meant for, uh, it makes perfect sense. And so, and you'll know exactly what I mean uh, when, when I say that, because uh, when you hear, if you're like me, when you hear young people speak today, okay, and I'm around young people every day, uh, but when they are speaking casually and sometimes, you know, like professionally, if you will, or supposed to be professionally, when they speak, you don't understand what they are saying. Now, it's not because they are speaking another language or another dialect, if you will, but it's a particular jargon, right? And so a young person will come up with these words that to you and I make absolutely no sense, but to them and their group, it makes perfect sense, right? And so when I was growing up, I'd use the word, well, that's lit. Right? I don't know if you all have ever used that phrase, but that's what I used growing up. That's lit, you know, and that, what that means, that, that's cool, that's awesome, that's great, you know, that's, that's, you know that's, that's pretty cool. For some, if you remember, like going back before me, it'd say, man, that's rad, that's rad, right? I, don't, I think that was a 60s thing, right? A 60s and 70s thing. Or you'll hear, the, that's wicked, that's just wicked. Well, it's not meant to be evil, it means it's just, it's cool, right? Sort of like when we say, oh man, that's bad. Right? Well, it's not really bad. It means something completely different. But you can see how somebody from another culture may not completely understand that. Well, now I'm hearing phrases like, uh, no cap. I had to have somebody define, Lucas is smiling at me right now because he knows I'm picking on him here. Uh, but it's all in jest. When somebody, and I had no idea what that means. Like the, He probably said it a hundred times to me before I finally just said, Lucas, what do you mean? And it means lie, right? Like, no lie. Is that really what it means? Am I... Am I close? Okay. See, he doesn't even know what it means. Okay. All right. So it's somewhere in that, you know, in that, or, or, or other words like fenna, like fen that to me, that's close to a spice, you know, like fennel. Like I thought we were spicing things up, but you get where we're going is that people, different, uh, different groups, different times, different cultures have different ways of speaking that not everybody else will know. Well, that's what's happening in Revelation is that there are different phrases, there is different imagery and different symbolism that's being used that not everybody will understand. And we are starting to see that in chapter 10, and we're going to see it even more as we move on through. So what I want to do is I want to read all of chapter 10, 
I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start breaking this down. But just to kind of give you a little hint so you'll know where we're going to be, today's message, and in fact this passage, has everything to do with God's Word and God's will. That's what's happening today. It is the preeminence of God's Word going out to the nations. It's God's Word going out to the people. That's what's happening here in this. So through all the symbolism of angels uh, with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land and, and John eating a scroll and that it's sweet but it's also bitter. That, I mean, it just like what is going on here? Well, it's talking about God's Word and what that means for us and for our world. So if you would join me in reading chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, the entire chapter, it's pretty short, then we're going to break it down. Starting in verse 1, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a, like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded... It, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from the heaven from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take it, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will, t it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to preach this text to read this text, to try to grasp and understand this text. I pray that you would be with us and that you would give us grace as we do that. Help us to understand and be enlightened by your word and help it to uh, make sense and help us to apply it to our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The word of God to the believer is the delight of our hearts. It's the delight of our hearts. The prophet Jeremiah, even in a distressed state, was able to rejoice in God's word, in the words of God. Now, the truth is, is that God's words and God's will are almost synonymous. They're almost synonymous. God's, if you want to know what God's will is for your life, you go to God's word. You don't go to anywhere else. You don't go to someone who's reading cards. You don't, look at, you don't go to somebody who's reading palms. We don't go to individuals who are looking in crystal balls or Ouija boards or all, anything like that. When we are looking for God's will, we go to God's word. They are nearly 
synonymous. Now, Jeremiah was able to rejoice in God's word, even though he was oftentimes distressed, distressed about the people of God and their sin, distressed about his own plight, distressed about his mission, and that folks were not listening to him, that he had this message that was to be given to the people, and they weren't listening, they weren't entertaining, they they were rejecting him. And in in Jeremiah 15, 16, it says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Now, did Jeremiah take a scroll and literally ingest it? No, he didn't. He didn't do that. What Jeremiah is saying is, I have feasted on your word, God. I have poured myself into your word. I have allowed your word to pour into me, and I've allowed it to fill me. I know your word. I love your word. I delight in your word. It is a joy and the delight of my heart. That's the frame of mind of Jeremiah. I dare say that many of these missionaries that we prayed for this morning and that hopefully we'll continue to pray for, that as they are out on the mission field, that the Lord's word is a delight to their heart, that it gives them a sense of peace, that it gives them a sense of direction, that it gives them a sense of understanding of what they are trying to endure at this time. When we ask, Lord, why are these things happening to me? We can go to God's word and say that God is still in control despite all the tribulation, all the toil, all the challenges that we face. Whether it be pain, whether it be, whether it be struggle, whether it be death, whether it be sickness, whatever it might be, that God is in control through every bit of it. There is not one thing that God is not in control of, and we see that in His Word. How do we know that God is in control? Because His Word says He is in control, and by faith we trust that. By faith we trust that. In the same way, Ezekiel, in chapter 3, verse 3, says this, And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. You see, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they were prophets. They were meant to go out into the world, out to their people, in fact, and proclaim God's word as prophets in a sort of, in a, not sort of, in an absolute, in an absolute way, thus saith the Lord. If you read Ezekiel chapter 1 through chapter 4, you'll see the call of Ezekiel, and God calls Ezekiel out, and he says, you are going, and I'm paraphrasing, you are going to go out into the world to your people, and you are going to say, thus saith the Lord. That's sort of code for these are God's words, not man's words. And God was calling Ezekiel to prophesy, not just, not to the whole world, but to his people, to the sinners, to the broken individuals who were rejecting God, who were intended to be the people of God, yet they were rejecting God. And Ezekiel was going to them, and he was proclaiming this word, and he ingested this word metaphorically, and it was sweet in his mouth. It was sweet as honey, because it is God's word. 
In Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40, the psalmist writes, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Precepts, rules, law, statutes, commandments, all of those are pointing to God's word. And the psalmist is not saying, make these words go away, make them less important, raise something else in its stead. No, he's saying, make these the desire and the inclination of my heart. Allow me to not gaze upon worthless things. Let me not entertain worthless things because the only thing that really has value is God's word. The only tangible thing that has value in front of us is God's word. Everything else will fade, but God's word will stand. How many of us this morning are gazing on worthless things, are desiring worthless things, things that, you know, are, you know, for a moment, and you know exactly what I mean. You get that new shiny thing. I just got a new TV. Just got a new TV. Now, I'm going to watch it this afternoon, I'm sure. And I'm sure by the end of the week, I'm going to be bored with it. Because that's what we do, right? We, just, we get bored with new things so quickly. Why? Because they're things. They have no eternal value. They have no eternal value. This week, it's a 65-inch. You know what? Next week, it's going to be an 85-inch. And we're thinking, wow, that's huge. In a year, that's going to be small. Because if you don't have a 150-inch screen where the people are actually coming out of the TV at you. You know, there's no worry about finding Nemo. He's right there in the living room with you. you it changes so fast. It changes so fast. I remember I got this, this iPad right here that helps me, it helps me preach. I'm very thankful for it. I'm thankful for technology because uh, it does help me. And I got this iPad, and I was so excited. And I went home, and I showed my dad that I got the iPad, and he said, oh, that's awesome, I may do that, but I'm going to wait a month because the new iPad is coming out in a month. And you know what happened? I stopped rejoicing in my new, in my new iPad because then I was sad because I didn't wait for the newer iPad. And that's the way it is with things that fade. And yet we still gaze on them. But God's Word, that's the beautiful thing about God's Word. God has been telling man his word from the beginning, and it's still not old. It's still applicable. It's still relevant. The same struggles that you have right now are the struggles that people have been having for ages. There's nothing new under the sun. When you say or when we think, they just don't understand. If they had to deal with what I had to deal with, they wouldn't say that, or they wouldn't write it that way, or they might be a little bit more compassionate. But what we understand is there's nothing new under the sun. Sin is sin is sin and has been since chapter 3 of Genesis, and it will be until Christ comes and brings His bride home. And we are called to endure. 
As Christians living in the 21st century, we have taken the Scriptures for granted. And I think everybody in here would likely agree with that, that we have really taken the Scriptures for granted. I don't mean that we don't like them. I don't mean that we don't love God's Word, but we've taken it for granted. How many Bibles do we have laying around the house collecting dust? I mean, seriously, you know? We have a plethora of Bibles. That means a lot, okay? But a lot just doesn't suffice. It's a plethora, okay? We just have Bibles everywhere of every different version. We have God's Word in journaling Bibles, in like... Uh, in sequential Bibles. We have Bibles that have coloring pages in it so that people can doodle and color and stuff. And I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying we have a wealth of God's Word, but we're not reading God's Word. It's almost as if too much is causing us just to take it for granted and be apathetic towards it. What about those individuals before the printing press when there was only one There's one Bible for maybe a town or a village or a church. If you wanted to know what God's Word said, what did you have to do? You had to go to the individual who had God's Word. Do you think they took it for granted? They would sit there for hours listening to God's Word, listening to what God had to say to them. Not the priest, not the preacher but God through His Word. But we've taken it for granted because there's such a wealth. And for many, God's Word has become little more than inspirational words in the line of Walt Whitman or Sylvia Plath. We hang them on our wall, we use them as bumper stickers, and we might even quote the most popular verses when the time suits. However, rarely do we let them direct our lives. I mean, think about this as we walk through life every day, through the mundane. I'm not talking about through those, those, those significant moments in our lives. I'm talking about through the mundane. How often is it, that, is it God's Word that's guiding us, that is lighting our path, as opposed to the next best thing that's in culture? Now, obviously, I speak in general because many of us, probably many of us in here. If I, if I took a poll, most of us in here, maybe every one of us would say, yeah, we, we like God's Word. We even love God's Word. If you ask most Christians, they would all say, of course we love God's Word. Why? Because that's what you're supposed to say, right? Can you imagine a Christian saying, I love Jesus, but I hate His Word? Well, that's kind of weird, considering that John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus being the very literal Word of God. We love God's Word, but we don't eat it, meaning feast on it and ingest it. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty this morning. God's Word may make you feel guilty. (laughs) I'm not trying to do that. What I'm doing this morning is I want to, number one, I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you this morning about pouring your life into God's Word. And some would say, and this has become a sort of a popular trend, to say that some of us, including myself probably, 
that we idolize God's word, that we hold it above even Christ. And I'd say, what does that even mean? Because the only way we know Christ is through his word. God does not want us to diminish God's word in order to elevate Christ. No one is worshiping at the foot of the Bible. What we're doing is we're pouring ourselves into the Bible so that we underknow the breadth and the length and the depth of the cost of the cross. We don't know it except for God's word. No one in here, no one in the church is in danger of idolizing God's word. No one's in the danger of it, so don't worry about that. The words of God have power. The power to create, the power to destroy, the power to save, the power to condemn. They are prophetic, redemptive, apocalyptic, applicable, and holy. And the words of God have cosmic reach. It was the words of God that created not just what we see with our naked eye, but what we can't see. It's God's word that created the smallest atom, the smallest electron floating around the smallest atom. And it's God's word that created the most distant star that the light will never reach us before Christ comes because it's too far away. That's the power of God's word. They are sweet to the redeemed. They are bitter to the lost. And there is a desire to have them claimed, proclaimed. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So let's go ahead and walk through this. And I'm going to try to break this down in the time that we have remaining so we can see what's happening. Verses 1 through 4. The cosmic, cosmic scope of God's word. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice saying from heaven, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now we're getting ready to talk about God's word and it being delivered and it being prophesied. But before we begin, we see this angel coming down and it has cosmic reach. His feet are on the sea and on the earth. What does that mean? It does not mean that he is some sort of like superhero or supervillain that Marvel has created. It is symbolism for the fact that God's the, the hosts of heaven, that God himself, that everything he does is cosmic in nature. It is not minute. It is not small. It is cosmic. It reaches from one end of the universe to the other. There is nothing that God is not sovereign over. And what is getting ready to happen, he is also sovereign over. It has a scope that is cosmic in nature. Now, this angel, some say or suggest that this is Christ. I mean, listen to it. It says that he comes down from heaven. He's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, sort of like a rainbow halo, if you will. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. We've heard that Christ, his legs were like bronze. This is not Jesus. That's not what's happening here. Nowhere in Revelation... Even though angels have been mentioned many, many times, I believe the number is like 67 times it's going to be mentioned, nowhere in Revelation is Jesus related to an angel or is Jesus or God called an angel. This is an angel 
that is described in this way, who is sent by God, and this symbolism demonstrates that this angel has been sent by God. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. And as he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. What does that mean? It means these seven thunders aren't people. Okay, It's not like this some, some people, a person or a group of people that has this loud thunderous voice. What it implies is that what is getting ready to happen, it has judgment all around it. It's filled with judgment. Judgment is getting ready to be rained down, and it's not local. It is cosmic in nature. What is getting ready to happen is not just going to upset or throw, uh, throw a wrench in what is happening in a local way, but it's going to have cosmic effects. It's going to affect everything that we see, and that is what God's Word does. It has cosmic effects. And that is also the beauty of God's Word, that it can have application and does have application for the individual. But it also has application globally, universally. It explains everything that has eternal value or that matters. You might suggest, well, it doesn't explain this. It doesn't explain this. It doesn't go into great detail about that. Remember what I said. It explains everything that matters eternally. We talk about, you know, many scientists like to throw in, you know, that science knows all the minute details about bacteria and cells and atoms and physics and all these kinds of things. And we, we think we're so smart as we get in there and we know all these, all these things and says we know more than the Bible does. And I'll say, that's not the scope of the Bible. The Bible doesn't care about those things. The Bible cares about things that are going to last eternally, that is affected eternally. And I would argue, actually, the Bible does address those things, just not in ways that we might want it to. And it says, And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Now, that's a curious thing. Because Christ has given this revelation to John so that he would reveal it. And now he's saying, don't reveal it. Don't write this down. This is not meant to be written down. Which leads us into our second point, is that there is a mystery in God's Word. We are people that want to know everything, don't we? We want to know why. We want to know why for everything, right? All of life's big, big mysteries, we want to know why. That's just kind of our curiosity. And, and, and it doesn't suffice for someone to say, you're not meant to know why. Some individuals will say, well, when we get to heaven, we'll know why. We'll know all of it. Folks, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Yes, some things will be revealed to us. Some things we will know why. And then I think that there are just certain things that are meant to remain a mystery. And we have to be okay with that. We are not going to be omniscient when we get into heaven. We are not going to be like God when we get into heaven. We're not going to be omnipotent. We're not going to be omniscient. We're not going to know everything. 
Because there are some things that only God is meant to know. Revelation 10, 5-7. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to the heaven to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it that right there should tell you that it's an angel and not Jesus because Jesus wouldn't be right raising his hand to himself and he says that there would be no more delay there's no more delay so he says, don't write this down. And then he comes down here, he raises his hand, he says, there will be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants and the prophets. So what is that? What is ever, what is getting ready to occur is a mystery, and there is a mystery that is going to be revealed Okay, but it's not intended to be revealed by John yet. What does that mean? It means this. That I take this to mean that there are going to be things that are going to be happening in the tribulation that we're just not aware of. There are still going to be surprises. So for any individual who reads all of this and says, I can calculate and know absolutely everything that's going to be happening with the return of Christ. I know everything that's going to be happening because we have God's Word and it reveals everything. It does not reveal everything because not everything was intended to be written down. John was getting ready to write it down, yet it is still a mystery. He says, don't write that down. And that mystery will be revealed. There is a mystery to God's Word. Sometimes intentional. So if we go back to the, the Gospels, we'll see that many of the parables, what were they intended for? Well, they were intended to explain these timeless truths, right? But at the same time, they were intended for some to hear and to understand. And for some, they were meant to obscure. The parables were intended to obscure the truth from those who would not believe. But for those who would believe, they would understand them. They would be able to grasp them. God's Word is a mystery. If you come and you say, I just don't understand. I don't read God's Word because I don't understand all of God's Word. Well, that's normal. Folks, I hate to say this, but I don't understand all of God's Word. I read through God's Word, and there are po points where I sit there, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're saying. I have no idea what you mean by that, Lord. So what do I do? Like a good student, I take one of my 400 commentaries that I have, right? Dust off the dust or unwrap them for the first time. I crack them open. You know that sound when you crack open a new book and it goes, it's just a wonderful sound. Anyway, all right, you open up that commentary and you go to a verse and you say, I'm going to study, I'm going to read from somebody who's smarter than me in this area. And sometimes you get insight and they say, oh, this is what this means. And you're like, oh, okay, now I get it. And sometimes you know what happens when you read a commentary? They say, we don't really know what this means. And then you look at the commentary and you say, I spent $40 on this for them to tell me I don't know what this means. Or you buy five commentaries all in the same book and you read them all and they all say what? Different things. Why? Because God's Word is a mystery. We don't know everything about God's Word. And not everything was intended to be revealed 
to us. Here's what we do know. Is that God's judgment is going to be coming forth. It is revealed in part in God's word, not in the whole. But God's word is raining down. God's judgment is raining down. And we are to be ready. We are to be ready. Which leads us into the second, the third part. The bitter sweetness of God's word. This is verses 8 through 10. It says, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, and I took him to give me this little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel, and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. This is an indicator that John is being considered a prophet here. Like Ezekiel, who ate the scroll, who ate the words of God, like Jeremiah before him, who ate the words of God, they ate the word, and it was a delight to the heart. It was a joy. It was sweet as honey. And so John here is being considered a prophet in this way, that he is getting ready to prophesy. And we're going to see that right here. But what I want to talk about just for a minute is this bitter sweetness of God's word. We use that phrase, bitter sweetness. And in fact, I, I actually looked up the etymology of that word, bittersweet. I was really curious where it came from because I was kind of wondering, did it come from here? Right? Did it come from this passage? I was getting really excited because sometimes I hear language and I'm like, man, that came from, that had to come from the Bible. Like the phrase, apple of my eye, that's biblical. Or the writing on the wall, that's biblical, right? Handed to him on a silver platter, biblical. Morbid and biblical, okay? Does bittersweet come from Scripture? Probably not. The first, the, the, the first indication that that came around was around the, around the 15th century. But the idea of this bittersweetness is this idea that something can both be bitter and sweet at the same time. Oftentimes, it was meant to be related to food, that it has a sweetness to it, but there's also this bitterness to it as well. I kind of think of cranberries when I think of that. I don't know if anybody else does. Maybe that's a silly analogy, but when you eat a cranberry, it's kind of bitter, but it's also sweet at the same time. Like, I don't know whether I love it or I hate it, but I'll just keep eating more of it, right? That's probably some sort of poor psychology, but you get the idea, right? Well, God's word has a bitter sweetness. We know what that means. Like, for instance, if we have to change jobs, right? There's oftentimes a bitter sweetness. It's, it's sweet because we get a new job and we get maybe more money or a, a promotion or something like that. And it helps our family. It's sweet, but it's bitter because we like our coworkers and we hate to leave them. When I left my church as worship pastor and moved here as the lead pastor, that was a very bittersweet moment because it was so sweet that I get to now lead you all and minister with you all and to you all and serve you all in this way. It was so sweet. But you all know that I was in tears because I was also, it was bitter because I'm leaving all these individuals that I've known for the last 20 years. Bitter, sweet. God's word is the same way. He ate it and it was a sweetness like honey, but it made his stomach bitter. What does that mean? To the redeemed, to the redeemed, God's word is sweet. It's a sweet, sweet presence. 
We delight in it. We rejoice in it. We celebrate God's Word. We want more of it. You know what I mean when you get in a groove reading God's Word and it just starts just stirring your affections for God and His kingdom, for the church, for your brothers and sisters, all those sorts of things that God's Word can do this. It just develops this sweetness. It is sweet because it contains the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is more sweet than knowing that while we are separated from God, that there is a resolution to this or there is a way to recover that relationship, and it is through Christ that God loved us in such a way that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, that's not bitter. That is sweet. It is sweet knowing that while at this moment before Christ we might stand condemned but that if we that if Christ saves us that we are then redeemed and can remain with him forever there's a sweetness to that there is a sweetness to know that we don't have to remain in sin but that we can forsake sin repent of sin and turn to Christ there is a sweetness to knowing that this is not the end There is a sweetness to knowing that when we close our eyes for the last time on this earth, that we will awaken and the first face that we see is Jesus Christ. There's a sweetness to that. There's a sweetness knowing that our loved ones who die in Christ, that while we are grieving, They are rejoicing. There is no bitterness. There is no grief for those who die in Christ. They are rejoicing. And then there are some of us who have loved ones that die outside of Christ. And that's where the bitterness comes in. The bitterness is that there is judgment, that there is a penalty for sin. There is a penalty for being outside of Christ. That there is true justice, that there is universal justice, meaning that God's justice is not local, it is cosmic. It covers all things. And some of us run from that. Some of us run from that truth. We are fine with saying that there is a heaven, but we run from the fact that there is also a hell. We're fine with saying that there is a God, but we recoil at the truth that there is a Satan, that there is an evil. We recoil at that. Sometimes it's because we have loved ones who are separate from Christ and we don't want to imagine that they will endure condemnation. And sometimes we recoil because it's us who's facing condemnation. God's word is bittersweet. It's sweet like honey, but it's bitter when we
we think of the judge, judgment and the condemnation that is going to come. It doesn't make it any less valuable. It doesn't make it any less good. It doesn't make it any less holy. And it doesn't make it any less true. But it is true that with the joy and with that sweetness, there is a bitterness that comes along too. Not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will come to Christ. And that's why God was calling John to prophesy these truths to the nations, to the kings, to the people, so that they would see the truth that God's judgment is coming, it is coming down, believe in the gospel, and be saved. You can't save yourself. So there is an urgency to God's word as we close. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Go into all the earth and share this truth. Share to people that sin is real, that hell is real, that death is real, and that eternal death is real. But you have a great Savior. Folks, if you are in sin, if you are stand condemned at this moment, you do not have to stay there. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. Is that not silly? It's absolutely ridiculous. In fact, it is crazy. I used this analogy once. I'll use it a hundred times. If you fall over the side of the boat, none of us are going to reject a life preserver. None of us are going to reject a float. None of us are going to reject saving. We're going to grab and we're going to cling to it for dear life because we want to be saved. And that's where, if we are lost this morning, that's where we are. We're floating out in the middle of the ocean. And when we reject Christ, it's like rejecting that flotation device. Sometimes it's out of spite. Sometimes it's out of anger. Sometimes it's out of ignorance. You have a great Redeemer there to save you. He is there. He is holding out His hand. He is saying, come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden. I will give you rest. If you are heavy laden this morning, if you are struggling this morning, in whatever way, physically, health-wise, relationship-wise, mentally, if you are struggling right now, Jesus is saying, Come to me and I will give you rest. How do I know that? Because the Bible says it. God's word says it and God's word is true. I don't know everything that we're dealing with. I, I, don't know, I can't even begin to fathom what everybody in here is struggling with right now. Sure, we have prayer requests and all that, and we reveal certain things, but I know that everyone in here has something that they just don't want to reveal to their neighbor, to their brother, to their sister, to their parent, to their grandparent, whoever it might be. And I get it. I have those, two th I have those things too. But God does know. You can't hide it from God. And He's there. Christ is there. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Folks, when the angel says this, 
He says this, and the sea, uh, it, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, um, let me jump down here real quick in verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. And there would be no more delay. Folks, there is no more delay. We are in the middle right now of the end times. What does that mean? Christ is coming. And there are no second chances. There are none. When Christ comes to redeem His church, church, and when we see Him, we are not going to be able to say, Christ, give me just a few more minutes. I, now I believe. That's not the way this works. When Christ comes to bring His church unto Himself, that's it. And so here's what I say to you. The same thing that Christ said in the beginning of Mark, Mark 1.15. Repent and believe. This isn't calculus. It's not even algebra. It's, it's, it's not that complicated. What must you do to be saved? Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that Christ was raised from the dead and that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. Not once, not twice, but with your whole life. What must I do to be saved? This is not difficult. Because it's not you doing the saving. It's Christ. Repent and believe.